Good evening. Good to see such a lively crowd on Good Friday. People still come to church on Good Friday. Getting thinner and thinner around the world, but uh, not tonight. If you're visiting with us, my name is Lance Waldy, pastor of Harvest Bible Church. Um, that's this church's biggest problem. Just want you to know that I know that. If you would, turn in the, in the, the Gospel of Mark with me. And I'd like to do a, a run-through in the Gospel of Mark with a, a, a little peek over at uh, John's Gospel on the, the Passion Week. The Passion Week of the Christ is the week that Jesus came into Jerusalem. He came in on a, a Monday, although it's celebrated as Palm Sunday. Well, the chronology gives us a Monday, though, believe it or not. Uh, that's going to that's gonna throw some of you for the whole service. So just go ahead and put it there, write it down, and say, I'll talk about that later. Don't, don't miss out the beauty of this. I love to go through this. I do not like to repeat sermons. I try not to ever do that or go back to... But at, at uh, Easter and Christmas, you know, th- th- there's a story. These are the greatest stories ever. The greatest miracles ever. Right there in with the creation of the world out of nothing. And so let's plow through it. Let's look at the week that occurred. But let's, let's make sure that you understand the backdrop of this is God's love for his people. God's love for his people caused God to become a man and to come and do and experience what he will experience. This is the climax of what he came to do. He's lived our life up to this point. In fact, in Luke's gospel, where we're going on Sunday, we go through on Sunday mornings, we're about a year, he's about a year out from arriving in this place. It's about a year out. He's, he's left his Galilean ministry. He's making his way to Jerusalem for the last time. And so when we look at this, this is the final week of Jesus's life. I'm in Mark chapter 10, in verse 33, and I'm going to stay in Mark except for one move over to John and maybe a move to Jeremiah. So if you've got your Bible, flip the pages with me, and uh, let, let's hold on. Hold on tight to the, those handlebars. We're gonna, I'm going to get through this in about an hour and 25 minutes. No, no, I, it's going to be a shorter one. I um, can't promise anything, but it, it might be shorter than the normal Sunday morning. Mark 10, says this. <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's him, as you know, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. It's no surprise that Jesus went in and what happened to him. He knows where he's going. He knows exactly what's going to happen. This is not a prediction. It's a prophecy. And it's, it's a prophecy that Jesus came to fulfill. So that's Mark 10. By the time you get over to, to chapter 11, verse 1, Uh, It's as they approach Jerusalem. So stop there, put your finger there, and move over to the right to John's gospel. You'll pass Luke, and then you'll be in John. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 backs it up two days. So that I wanted to give you this chronology. And if you have your pen or pencil, you want to write in your Bible, I want you to write this. It's good for you to have in your Bible. Some of you are going to say, I already wrote it. You you did this like 20 times since I've been coming to this church. I haven't done it that many times, but... On, in John chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. The Passover happens on Friday. Six days before the Passover makes it 
Saturday. Good class. Saturday is the Sabbath in Israel. Six days before the Passover, he came to Bethany. Bethany is two miles from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, It's right there on the Mount of Olives, just over the Mount of Olives. And if you were in Israel with us, I hope that you were able to start getting the pictures that you took, uh, real life pictures that you were there. That's where this is. Bethany is right there on the Mount of Olives, about two miles from Jerusalem. And Jesus is staying there. This is what Lazarus was. We also know that Mary and Martha lived there. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, in verse, uh, see, in verse 3, it says, Mary, she took a pound of very costly perfume, poured nard, and anointed his feet and, and Jesus, on Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's a beautiful scene. She's worshiping Jesus. But Judas Iscariot enters the, the, the fray here. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? That's 300 days worth of wages. Why didn't you sell this perfume and go give it to the poor? So I want you to note here, Judas is furious. Six days before the Passover, Judas is angry. He's going to be the pawn. He's going to be the one that's going to betray Jesus. You know this. And now you know what tipped the scales here. He's very angry. So here in John's gospel, he asks this question. Uh, John says in verse 6, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The day is over there. So Saturday is over at the end of verse 8. Sunday, verse 9, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came. Because they can't come on Saturday, you can't travel that far on the Sabbath. They come over and they they come to see Jesus. They know that Lazarus had been raised from the dead just a few months prior. All these Jews come, they learn that Jesus was there. They came not for the sake of Jesus only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Note this, but the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Verse 12, on the next day, that's Monday, that's Monday, that's going to be Monday, Nisan 14th, I'm sorry, Nisan 10, and our way of reckoning is going to be March the 30th. So let's go back to Mark's gospel, where we will remain. John's gospel has us in the same place as Matthew 11. Jesus is, I'm sorry, in Mark 11. Jesus has said in Mark 10, as I read, we're going to Jerusalem and that's where I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. By Monday, or we, so Mark doesn't include it, but we had the little event there where Jesus' feet are anointed by Mary. Judas Iscariot is, is angry. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Beth, Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now here's Monday, Nisan 10 which is March the 30th, A.D. 33. Put that in your Bible. Write that in there if you don't already have it. March the 30th, A.D. 33. By the way, the, the, the reckoning of this and the reason it's Monday is we know from, it dates all the way back to Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Uh, if you're familiar with the 70 weeks, very complicated. I don't have time to go through it, but it's a wonderful prophecy. I wish I could talk about it every single week, but I'd empty out the church within two weeks. So when you put the days of the prophecy, the days of the prophecy total this. They total this angel is sent from God to Daniel. And he tells Daniel around 550 B.C., he said, 70 weeks are decreed for your people. 77. It's 490 years is what it is. 490 years are decreed for your people as a punishment, as it were, to purge out what Israel has done wrong. Because by the time you're in Daniel's prophecy, Israel has now been taken out of her land and they're living in Babylon. 
God's people are supposed to live in the land of Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey, but they're in Babylon. And the angel tells Daniel, 70 weeks, 490 years are decreed for your people. Now, when you put the 490 years together, it starts with, with this decree. The angel tells Daniel, he said, there was, a decree is going to go out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Because like I told you, Daniel and his people of Israel, they're in Babylon. But a decree is going to go out from some king that's going to allow them to go back to Israel and rebuild their city, their temple, their city. That decree went out on March the 5th, 444 B.C. by a Persian king named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, we know about Artaxerxes from history outside the Bible and from the book of Nehemiah. That prophecy in 444 B.C., that's when the 490 years begins. Now, 490 years, you got to convert it because there's leap years in there. You can't just count 490 years from 444 B.C. got to include the leap years because it's not a complete 365-day year. you got to add this. That's why we have leap years. So when you put it all together, it comes down to this. <laughs> Glazed look already. 173,880 days. So if you count... You converted all the leap years and everything. You've got 173,880 days. Write that down. You can put that there because when you count down from 444 B.C., March the 5th, and you count down 173,880 days, this is the day you get. This is that day. That's just simple mathematics for you math wizards. This is the day. It's Monday, Nissan 10... And by the way, in Exodus chapter 12, do you know what day the Israelites were told to choose the Passover lamb? Nisan 10. Because they would kill it and slay it on Nisan 14. This is Nisan 10, March the 30th, A.D. 33, the Lamb of God. And Daniel's prophecy was, that is the Messiah. He will be cut off. What man came into Jerusalem 173,880 days after Daniel's prophecy? Uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Walked into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. Here he is. He comes into town. The people are, notice what they say in verse 9. Those who went forth from him, by the way, he's asked for a, he said, go over this nearby town, nearby home, and, and uh, get me a colt. Because, you know, Zechariah 9, verse 9, says that the king will come in on a colt. Most people walked everywhere. But Jesus is the king. So they go and get him a colt. And he comes into town. As he comes into town, note there in verse 9, those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Sounds like a woman's name, doesn't it? The Hebrew word means save us now. Save us now. Or save now. It kind of morphed into a word of praise, of like, praise God. And so they're saying it, save now or praise God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. David was their finest king. Hosanna in the highest. You think that these people know who Jesus is. Well, he's come into town. Maybe some have, 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 have done the math on the prophecy. There's our king. And they think he's going into Jerusalem to set up shop and rule over Israel. Get rid of the Jews. I'm sorry, get rid of the Romans. But know what he does on this day. This great triumphal entry day, verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, came to the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. Too late to set up my kingdom, I guess. He just went in. He goes in, people are waving palm branches, hence Palm Sunday, which actually was a Monday. He goes in, maybe all these people are shouting Hosanna to God in the highest, he's going to go in and be king. Jesus walks into the temple, 
takes a look around. Let's go home. Bethany, two miles over. No kingdom set up that day. People might be scratching their head. On the next day, verse 12, that's Tuesday, March 31st, A.D. 33, of the Passion Week. Jesus has simply gone in and seen how corrupt it is. Next day, when he had left Bethany, he came hungry. He became hungry. At a distance, he saw a fig tree and leaf. Now, tell me if this confuses you. Seeing a fig tree at a distance, he went to see if perhaps it would find anything on it. And when he came and he found nothing but leaves, you would expect it to say, for it was the season for figs. But if you don't find anything on a fig tree, because it's not the season for figs, seems pretty normal, right? But here's the interesting thing. You ever studied a fig tree? Yeah, it's fascinating to study fig trees. Fig trees actually leaf, and they have these little buds on them. And this is before they start springing figs. The buds fall off, and later on the figs grow around May. Jesus comes in. He's looking for that little bud, but he doesn't find it. Incidentally, I said I might take you to Jeremiah. Just let me, let me read it. I won't even tell you where I'm going, so you don't flip. Just listen. Jeremiah 8.13 Here's what the prophecy says. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree. And the leaf will wither and what I have given them will pass away. He's likening Israel to a fig tree. When you see a fig tree, if it's got leaves on it, it looks like it's alive. But if there are no buds, it's dead. Same is true with Christians. We can look and talk like Christians, but if there's no fruit, we might not be Christians. Jesus sees the fig tree this way, seeing at a distance fig tree and leaf, finds nothing on it but leaves, and he curses it. Verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples were listening. Now, this is a precursor to what he's about to do in Jerusalem. This fig tree is indicative of Israel. It looks alive, green leaves, but there's no fruit on it. Verse 15, he came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling selling in the temple. Now, this might be the second day where people are expecting maybe this is the day he'll go set up his kingdom. But he goes in, he's overturning the tables. People are using the temple of that day. It's uh, Passover. And so if, you've, if you have Passover lamb, you wouldn't want to bring it from miles away. You have to buy your lamb there or exchange your lamb for a better lamb. Plus, you've got to convert your money, foreign money, into the money that, that the Jews will accept. And they were charging exorbitant interest. This is what angered and infuriated Jesus. In fact, it was, you might call it a mob outfit, a a mafia outfit run by Annas, the high priest. Jesus goes in and turns over all of his tables. If you're Annas, you're not going to be too happy with Jesus about this. So he goes in on this this Tuesday, turns over all the tables, says here in verse 17, he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You have made it a robber's den. The Jews might have expected Jesus to go in and run out all the Romans. He's running out the Jews. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So, Now you got more people out to kill him. Why? He turned over their tables. When evening came, verse 19, they would go out of the city. That's Tuesday evening, verse 20, Wednesday morning, April the 1st, A.D. 33. As they were passing by in the morning, so they go home to Bethany, comes back in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Peter looks at it, look, Lord, this is what you did. You made it go away. How did you you make it wither? And Jesus said, if you believe... In prayer, all things are, are, are granted to you. In fact, verse 24, 
Therefore, Jesus says, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. This is what we've looked at recently in Luke chapter 11, praying God's will, praying for this, the cursing even of a nation that will not bear fruit for God, or a a person that calls himself a Christian that does not bear the necessary fruit indicative of what a Christian is. So it's Wednesday morning, April 1st, Jesus is back. He's already made plenty of enemies from the day before. Verse 27, when they came again to Jerusalem, so they passed the fig tree, they made their way into Jerusalem, and he's greeted by these authorities. In verse 28, they began asking him or saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Clearly talking about the previous day's events. What are you turning over these tables for? What authority do you have to do this? Jesus doesn't say, I am God in the flesh. Verse 29, he said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, then I will give you, tell you about what authority I do these things. That was the baptism of John, that is John the Baptist, from heaven or from men? Answer me, Jesus says. They discuss among themselves. You, you ever watch Psych? Anyone in here ever watch Psych? I love Psych. Raise your hand. I want to know how many people I'm talking to. Psych is clean. It, it's, I think it's funny. Of course, if I say it's funny and you don't like it, you think, ah, that was dumb. It is dumb. That's the point. But every time Psyche and his partner have to talk about something, they'll be talking directly to somebody, they turn around and they have this conversation. And the people can hear him anyway. So I, that's kind of the way I picture these chief priests. They've all turned around discussing among themselves, was John's, uh, was it from heaven or not? Jesus the whole time, I can hear everything you're saying. And they turn around with this brilliant remark, we don't know. And so Jesus says, you want to answer me? Then I will tell you not. I will not tell you by what authority I do these things. If you cannot answer the most basic, simple question, was John sent from God or was he from man? Then you'll not understand where I got my authority. Chapter 12. By the way, Wednesday's a long day. Chapter 12, he began to speak to them in parables. And he he talks about planting a vineyard and how the the, he speaks of God as the vineyard owner. And he sends his prophets to come get some of the, the, uh, uh, the fruit of the land. They kill the prophet. They kill another prophet. The The landowner says, I'll send my son, which is Jesus. They kill him. And Jesus is telling them, this parable shows you that I'm judging you, the nation of Israel. You want me to come in and set up my kingdom and expunge the the Romans. You're the problem. You're the ones that need to repent, he's telling them. Verse 12, and they were seeking to seize him, but they feared the people. Verse 13, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Look back in Mark's gospel at chapter 3, verse 6. This is early in Jesus' ministry. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. It's a terrible thing to do, isn't it? To heal someone on Saturday? What horrible, what blasphemous. A man with a shriveled hand. And Jesus touched him and gave him his entire arm back. What a terrible God we serve. After he did this, Mark 3, 6 says the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. They've been after him his entire ministry. And now here they are again in Mark 12, 13. They sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and they said, teacher, Note this. I write, I write my Bible right here. Schmoozers. They came to him and they said, Teacher, we know you're truthful and defer to no one. 
For you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Don't miss the sarcasm and the ridiculousness that's found in the Bible of what people say when they're schmoozing. They're just trying to, under the radar, Jesus knows what they're doing. And they say, oh, we've got a question. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? A poll tax is a, uh, it's a census tax. And they're saying, should we pay all of us a denarius, a day's wage to the Romans? Jesus says, give me a coin. Take a look at the coin. He sees an image of Caesar. Whose image is this? Caesar's. He says, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Wouldn't you love, I would love to be, well, I, that's some say I would love to be Jesus, but I would love to have the intelligence, the wisdom that Jesus can just say one line and shuts everyone up. He didn't say anything else to him. And he knows their hypocrisy. So the next people come at him. That's verse 18. Some Sadducees. Remember, this is a long Wednesday. Sadducees who say there's no resurrection, they give Jesus a scenario whereby they say there was this woman and she married a man and that man died. And then she married another man and that man died. And she married all seven men. They were all brothers and they all died. And they ask their, their, question, their question is, they think they've really, they've really got Jesus in verse 23. In the resurrection, my guess is that they said that very sarcastically. In the resurrection, which verse 18 says they don't believe in. When they rise again, which one's wife will she be? I imagine they all kind of nudged each other. <laughs> we got him here, right? Here's Jesus' answer. Bless your little hearts. That's what Jeff Foxworthy says. That's how a redneck says, you're so stupid. Is this not the reason you're mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? And then he quotes to them in the five books that they do believe. The Sadducees only believe um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah, the Pentateuch. They only believe those books. And as far as they're concerned, there's nothing in there that speaks of a resurrection. So Jesus says, in your own books. By the way, this is in Exodus chapter 3. Verse 26, Jesus says, But regarding the fact that the dead do rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Sadducees move away. Scribes come in. Verse 28. One of the scribes came, heard them arguing, recognized. He said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of all? Jesus tells him. Quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He answered, the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbors yourself. By the way, this is a different question, different context than what we looked at in Luke. Chapter 10, where the good Samaritan follows. This is another one asking that question. This guy seems to get it. The scribe tells Jesus in verse 32, you're a right teacher. You've stated truly that there is one, that he is one, and there's no God besides him. When Jesus saw in verse 34 that he had answered intelligently, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Previously, the scribe that asked Jesus in Luke's gospel, he didn't understand who his neighbor was. So Jesus described who his neighbor was by giving the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here Jesus says, you got it. You're getting it. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Where scribes come up, Jesus began to say in verse 35, he makes another statement about David and how David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. He says in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him, but the scribes didn't. They left. They couldn't answer him. And so Jesus says in verse 38, beware of those scribes who like to walk around in long robes 
Verse 38, the chief priests sitting in the synagogue, or he says the chief seats in the synagogues, they like to be seen by people. He sat down opposite the treasury in verse 41, gets into the temple, observes people giving, sees a woman that gives all she has, equates to probably one penny. He says she's giving more than anyone gave, all the people out of their wealth. Verse 44, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And Jesus watched this. This is all happening on Wednesday, April 1st, A.D. 33. Then he gives what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's a fancy way of saying a sermon he gave on, the, on, the ser- on top of the, the Mount of Olives. They ask, when is the end coming? He tells them. Tells them to be on their guard over and over in Mark's gospel. If you look down in, in the beginning in verse 23, take heed, behold. Verse 29, even so you too, when you see these things, recognize that he is near. Verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. The end of verse 34, stay on the alert. The beginning of verse 35, be on the alert. Verse 37, what I say to you all, be on the alert. Christians, wake up. Look at the world in which we live. This is the context of the end times. And before Jesus makes his way back over the Mount of Olives into Bethany, he gives this sermon on Wednesday, April the 1st of AD 33. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover... And unleavened bread were two days away. By the way, the Passover happens on the first day, and the rest of the days of the feast are the unleavened bread. Sometimes it's just called the unleavened bread feast. But you've got the Passover and the unleavened bread were coming up. That's why Jesus is there. He's there for the Passover. They were two days away. That means it's Wednesday, because the Passover was on Friday of the year A.D. 33. And we know that that Friday was a day of preparation for the Sabbath that followed, which is Saturday the next day. In fact, there's only, there's four dates that, that fall where, where Friday, the preparation for the Sabbath falls on, where the, the prep, where, where the Passover falls, I should say, on that Friday. And it's the preparation for the Sabbath the next day. Those years are 27, 30, 33, and 36. The 27 is ruled out, 36 is ruled out. The only two particular dates that fit the timeline, that fit the actual dates, would be in the year AD 33 or the year AD 30. I think that it's far and away all the evidence moves to A.D. 33, especially with Daniel's prophecy as it was. But notwithstanding, we'll move on. This is the end. It says, now the Passover unleavened bread and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and to kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. And then you've got Mark's gospel. He flashes back here in, in beginning in chapter 14, verse 3. He flashes back to that episode I read to you in John's gospel that happened six days prior to the Sabbath. What Mark is doing is he's saying, this is what made Judas Iscariot so angry. And it's why the chief priests here in 14.1 are trying to get together and find a way to get Jesus. Mark adds the story here so that he'll give you context as to how he got that. That, or how those men, how the chief priests and scribes got that help. As if to say, they're looking for a reason to get him. And six days prior, Judas Iscariot got really angry. And it tells the story there, beginning in verse 3. It says in verse 10 here, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. So he gives us that context right there. The day is over. Mark chapter 14, verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, Thursday, April the 2nd, A.D. 33, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. So we know it's the Passover meal happening on this Thursday. By the way, Jesus and his men, 
celebrated a day from 6 a.m. or sunrise to sunrise. Half the Jews, the Judean Jews, celebrated Passover from sunset to sunset. So their days are 12 hours off from each other, which really proved to be beneficial with the so, so many people in for the Passover. There were two Passover lambs because Nisan 14 for Jesus would begin at 6 a.m. at sunrise on Thursday. That's Nisan 14 a.m. Stay with me. Stay with me here because this is where people go off into la-la world. At 6 a.m., sunrise on, on Thursday morning, it's Nisan 14. That's the day of the Passover lamb. That Passover for Jesus and the Galileans will last from 6 a.m. on Thursday to 6 a.m. on Friday. That's their 24-hour time period of Nisan 14. So, Nisan 14, this is 6 a.m. You with me? We're just going to go 6 a.m. at sunrise. At 6 p.m. that night at sundown, the Judean Jews are now reckoning Nisan 14 begins here. So Nisan 14 overlaps them by 12 hours up to this point. Why is he telling us this? Because there's another Passover on Friday. When they want to take Jesus into the praetorium, the Jews say, we don't want to go into the praetorium, the Roman praetorium, and make ourselves unclean so that we can't eat the Passover meal. And you're going, wait a minute, Jesus ate it the night before. How did he eat it the night before? And you're worried about eating it the next day. Two times because they reckoned from two different points in which it happened. Are you with me? Who's going to admit that you're not, right? Hang in there. I'll explain it to you again later. Come up when it's all over. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Are you with me? Are you having fun? You're not having fun. It's church. You don't have fun in church. Now I got to find where I was, so... Verse 12, thank you, Sharon. First day of unleavened bread, so that Jesus picks the Passover place, his, his, uh, his men go and secure the spot. It says in verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the 12. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly one of you will betray me. He says in verse 21, for the Son of Man is going to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So again, Jesus knows what's going to happen. It's Thursday night now. This is the night before. They have the Lord's Supper together. They partake in it. Because it's the Passover. They're remembering the exodus from Egypt. They're remembering God's grace, freeing the people, sparing the firstborn by painting the lamb's blood on a doorpost. Verse 32 After they finished the supper, they came to the place called Gethsemane. And again, for those of you who just got back from Israel in early March, think of your moments, that wonderful day that we had in Gethsemane, the peace, the serenity of it, and how we got to just sit there and and take it in. That's where Jesus is. It's nighttime. Jesus says, sit here until I've prayed. And he began to be very distressed there in verse 33. Took Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus is not sitting back going, this is going to happen. What happens is what happens. What I came to do. He's in pain over what's about to transpire. He is human. Although God, he is human. Verse 35, he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. That's his first prayer. He comes and he found them sleeping. 
said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? In other words, Jesus was praying for an hour. It's already late. He's praying for an hour. Wakes him up. Keep watching and praying. Verse 39, again, he went again and prayed the same words. Second time he's prayed those words. Lord, if this cup can pass from me, let it. If it can't, your will be done. Second time. Verse 41, came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? Prayed it three times. Three times. Isn't that what Paul did for that thorn in his flesh? Three times. And God said, no. No, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Even the Son of God got a no in this prayer. He's arrested. Judas shows up in verse 43. Verse 53, they led him away to the high priest, chief priest, elders, scribes. They set up a mock trial, a kangaroo court. Caiaphas asked him in verse 61, or in verse 61 it says, but he kept silent, did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning, and that's Caiaphas, and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. Can you imagine that? I am. Isn't that the name of God? I am. And you shall see the Son of Man. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the priest said, you've heard the blasphemy. You don't call yourself the Son of Man. Unless you are. And Jesus is. So they condemned him, saying he deserves death. This is late Thursday night. To add insult to injury, not only has Peter fallen asleep three different times, now he's out behind Jesus' back denying him. Chapter 15, verse 1, early in the morning. That's Friday morning, April the 3rd, A.D. 33. Chief priests, the elders and scribes, there's those group again. Immediately called a consultation, binding Jesus. They led him away, delivered him to Pilate. They brought him to Pilate, who's the Roman governor. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Literally, Jesus says, even though your text says, it is as you say, the Greek text just says, you say, you say. Are you the king of the Jews? You say. Those are your words. Jesus didn't say, yeah, yeah, that's what I am. You say, that's what you say. In all of your convoluted way of thinking, that's what you say. But he doesn't want to condemn Jesus. He hates the Jews. He wants to set Jesus free. Ends up shouting, People shout at him. He ends up setting a man named Barabbas. By the way, verse 7, the man named Barabbas, it means no father, son of no one. (laughs) Abbas, Abba means father. Bar means son of, son of a father. Nobody. You wouldn't want to name your kid that. Just a, a son of nobody, a nobody. Verse 13, the crowd is shouting, crucify him. Verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released the son of nobody. And after having Jesus scourged, handed him over to be crucified. Verse 17, they dressed him in purple, twisting a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And this is the part that just gets me. I hate to even read it. They kept beating him, beating his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they led him out to crucify him. As a part of me, I mean, the way I'm wired, if you did that to somebody I love, I'd just boil. Let me at him. I'm filled with all the sin that's, that propels me to hurt someone. To hurt somebody who's beating up an innocent person I don't know. But my Lord... 
They kept doing this to him. His friends fell asleep on him. Peter's out denying him. And his enemies are beating him, spitting on him. That's the sad part of Good Friday. We celebrate this. It's not morbid. This is what we deserve. This was for us. He came to take it for us. He's like that, that big brother, that, that big friend that we have that comes to take it for us. Verse 21, they passed, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. This would have been a black man from Africa. They pressed him into service. Later on, this man had a son, Rufus, whom Paul greets in Romans 16. Apparently, Simon of Cyrene had an amazing experience carrying Jesus' cross. He was never the same. And his son was never the same either. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus, again, who Paul greets. They brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. We were there. It's called Gordon's Calvary. We stand, sit on the side of that mountain, and you look at it, and it looks like a skull. It's a hop, skip, and a jump from the city. They led Jesus through the Via Dolorosa, read him to this place. They put him on a cross with two other people. Don't ever assume that Jesus was way up there. The cross would have been right here on the ground. It would have been just a, a little step up. He was there for all to see. That's what the Romans wanted. They wanted people in this, and it was, it's a large passageway. People walk this way all the time, even today. They wanted people to see, this is what happens when you mess with the Romans. And so he... He was there beaten and battered. He had done nothing wrong. They brought him to the place of Golgotha. Verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour is 9 a.m. If the day began at 6 a.m., the third hour is 9 a.m. So put 9 a.m. there. Verse 33, when the sixth hour came, it's noon. What happens at noon? Does darkness come over the earth? It did that day. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time Jesus ever calls his father God. He's been separated from his father for our sake. That's what Good Friday is. Verse 37, he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Veil of the temple. The flash goes over to the temple. The veil of the temple is torn from the top to bottom. Opening the pathway, the Passover lamb has now died, giving us access to God without a priest. He is that priest. And in Mark's gospel, I had to preach, or we had when I was in seminary, we preached through Mark's gospel in my preaching class. There were just seven of us. And so we each got two sermons from, from Mark, and we had to go through or assign these. And it's really an apologetic. I found that Mark's kind of an apologetic, trying to show here's another indication that Jesus is the Christ. Here's an indication that Jesus is the Christ. And no one ever gets it. The one person that gets it is right here. The one person that finally gets it, it's a Roman centurion. Verse 39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Finally, someone, a Roman centurion. In Jesus of Nazareth, it's Ernest Borgnine. And you know, in, in making the movie Jesus of Nazareth, I believe it was 1973, Borgnine said that when I was making the scene and I was looking, they had the camera on me, I was looking up at the cross. He said, that's when I came to know Christ. Isn't that awesome? He said, there was an experience that, that passed all others. I saw him and I knew he was my Lord. Don't you love that? 
Making a movie. Yeah, people in Hollywood can come to Christ too. It's Friday evening, verse 42, when evening had come, because it was already the preparation day. That's Friday. That is the day before the Sabbath, because that's what Friday is. It's the day before Saturday, the Sabbath. They put him in a tomb. Saturday is the Sabbath, April 4th, A.D. 33. On Sunday, April 5th, A.D. 33, when the Sabbath was over, chapter 16, verse 1, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. When they come to the tomb, verse 6, the angel that speaks to them says, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. The old here is the place where they laid him. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment gripped them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You know, the interesting thing you've got on Passover, the Passover feast, the lamb is selected on Nisan 10. Jesus came into town on Nisan 10. The lamb is slain on Nisan 14. Jesus died on Nisan 14. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the apostle Paul says, Christ is our Passover lamb. Do you know what the third day of the feast is? The feast of first fruits. Jesus is called by Paul in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. Now you might say there were other people that rose from the dead. They were the two or three people in the Old Testament that rose from the dead. But folks, they weren't resurrected to glory. They died again. They were more like resuscitated. How about Lazarus? Lazarus was resuscitated. He died again too. Jesus is the firstborn ever from among the dead to glory. Look at the typology, Nisan 10, Nisan 14, the third day afterward, after the day of rest, he rested in the tomb. All of the prophecies, on the third day he will rise again, Jesus' own words, and on the third day I will rise again, on the third day I will rise again. In Luke chapter 24, the two men walking on the road to Emmaus, and they say this is the third day since this happened. Well, that's for Sunday. Today we celebrate the horrific death. Why would we celebrate a death? Because the wages of sin is death. You and I have sinned. We've all sinned, and the wages is death. But Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what's beautiful about Good Friday. We celebrate that God became flesh, lived our life in the Gospels, died our death, and tonight we'll commemorate it. Now, we commemorate it at this church every time we come to church. Tonight, we'll also commemorate it with the supper. So men, if you would get up and let's pass the elements out. I went 10 minutes past what I wanted to do. But I did all right to get done when I did. If you are a member of, the, if you're not a member of this church and you are a believer in Christ, I hope that you will partake of the supper with us. You do not need to be a member here to do so. If you are a child and you are not sitting with your parents, we will not serve you those elements. Uh, we believe that you need to be a professing Christian and have been baptized to have that. Um, move with your parents, and if your parents decide that you can, that's up to them. Um, if you are on the outskirts, you're either saying you don't want it, or you can say, Brent, you guys, if you want the supper, just grab James or somebody. No one's there to help you out. If you don't, there's no shame in not partaking. So uh, uh, we'll play a little music, and as the elements are passed, I hope you'll be in, in prayer.
Thank you, Christina. Let me say a word or two about this. It's a nice little packaging. It's not meant to be a, a huge meal. That's the way the supper used to be celebrated. It's all in one. goes back to COVID. Uh, it's more sanitary, right? As you pass it along. Please don't let the rudimentary nature of it in any way take away from what it means. As I said, we celebrate the death of Jesus every week here. Every time we gather, it's what the scripture says, do it as often as you, as you meet. If we wanted to, to really do the supper, it's every time Christians come together to break bread. We celebrate and remember the Lord's death and his return. We do it at church here every three months. I would never want it to become so routine that people walk to the front in some liturgical way of just taking uh, juice or wine and, and, and a piece of bread. So we celebrate it here at least as an ordinance every three months, but we remember it every time we gather. So be careful with this. There's a little tiny piece of cellophane on the top. If you grab too much, you're going to get the juice and it's going to splash you. So do the first and take that piece of cardboard, I mean bread. The Apostle Paul speaks of the night Jesus died to the Corinthians. He says, the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed. That's Thursday night. April the 2nd, A.D. 33. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we partake of this bread, whatever it's made of, we remember the Lord's death, the love of God that he would become flesh and die for us. And so that we do. The next one, take the next layer. Don't just rip it open. You'll get it all over you very carefully. Paul continues. He says, in the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every covenant is sealed with blood. The old covenant of the law is superseded by the new covenant. Jesus has fulfilled the law. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Note, in remembrance of me. What we do, we do in remembrance of Jesus. His broken body, his shed blood. Here's what Paul says we just did. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup... You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, Jesus, on the night he died, he told the men in taking the cup and breaking the bread, the Passover meal, he said, I will not eat this meal again. Remember, they had eaten together every night for three years, three and a half years. If you know and love someone to the extent that the disciples love Jesus, anyone that you love, if they say, look, we're not going to be able, I'm moving, I'm leaving. Jesus said, I will not eat the fruit of the vine till I come again in my Father's kingdom. When I come again, we're going to have that meal. We're going to eat this again together. And so we not only remember the death of Jesus, his broken body, his shed blood, we are also looking forward to that meal we're going to have together. Looking back and looking forward, that's what the supper is. We look back to what he did, and we look forward to what's coming. Because when Jesus arrives, it's a wedding feast. And I've been to some elaborate weddings, but none are going to be like this one. 
when the king comes, and he doesn't come up a sidewalk at a wedding venue. He comes out of the sky with his armies with him, the raptured church, and he lands, as it were. And there's this meal. And we're going to eat with Jesus. That's what we commemorate. The death which bought our salvation, we look forward to his return. I'm going to pray, and Doug and his team is going to come up and lead us in song as we close. Lord, thank you. Thank you for dying. Thank you for being who you are to us. Thank you for becoming a man and living our lives. I couldn't do it. No one could. We could not live without sin. But you did. Hence, you were the perfect sacrifice. What you did, you offer freely to all. Thank you. I pray for those who might not have received it yet. Open their hearts to receive it. There is forgiveness. There is your love in a form we don't even, we can't even put to words. You poured out your love. Thank you for it. May we worship you for it. Thank you for bringing us here tonight to celebrate this. Bring us again on Sunday morning as we commemorate the real good story. You are not dead. You rose from the grave. And by believing that, we are saved. We are forgiven. We are saved. May we come with great rejoicing on Sunday morning. But may we leave here tonight not just sober-minded, but also rejoicing. You died for us, a wretched sinner like me. Thank you. May my life, may our lives as the church rise up before you as a living sacrifice. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 